Good morning. And uh, thank you, Tyler, for that uh, reading of the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant, and the authoritative word of God. <clears throat> Last month, uh, we drove to Maine for vacation, taking turns driving. And one day, the passenger cried out in alarm because of an impending crash. And the driver said, why don't you stop watching the road? And the passenger replied, well, one of us needs to. The car was deathly quiet after that. Control, right? We want control because we know better. We see that with the steering wheel and the brake, the checkbook, the TV remote, how and when to discipline the kids, how to load the dishwasher, and where to set the thermostat. And the list goes on and on. Not that any of this happens in my home. I'm pretty easygoing. Just ask, better not, just ask me, and I'll tell you that I'm pretty easygoing. Now, some of this is silly, but control can lead to abuse and oppression because of the sin in our hearts. Not only do I want my way, I'm going to have my way. <clears throat> the Philistines had their way with Israel. <clears throat> they conquered and oppressed the Israelites for years. Instead of relying upon God for their protection, they pleaded for a king. And so God gave them a king. The first king didn't work out too well. The second king was an adulterer and a murderer. The third king worshipped the gods of his hundreds of wives, and it only got worse from there. It was a failed experiment in government that God would bring to a close. But God is good and gracious. Yes, he ended the Davidic kingdom, but he also promised a new and a better king. Today in Micah 5, we're going to see that Jesus is that new and better king, we're going to see today that Jesus rules, and I have three points. Jesus rules over his church, Jesus rules over the nations, and Jesus rules over me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, so often we think of you as <clears throat> our brother, our savior, a friend to sinners, and you're all of those things. Uh, but Lord, we ask you to help us today to get a better grasp of you as our great king who rules over all. Amen. But once again, our first point is Jesus rules over his church. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's church. It was a theocracy, but they wanted a king. And so God gave them a king who became the human head of the Old Testament church. But the kings were terrible rulers over the church. Each was a flawed and a sinful man. If you do a search for did evil in the Bible, you'll find a lot of bad kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now God had warned Israel that a human king was a bad idea, but the people ignored that warning and they suffered for it. But God is good and gracious. He saw the abuses of the kings. He saw the oppression of his people. And so he sent prophets to call the kings and the people to repent and turn back to him, but they did not. And so 150 years before the last king of Judah, God warns that he's going to end the Davidic kingdom. Take a look at verse 1 in Micah 5, where Micah prophesies about that last king. Now muster your troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. 
150 years after this prophecy, the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, mustered his troops. He had to. He was an evil and a treacherous man who swore allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar and then rebelled against him. Nebuchadnezzar was peeved. And like all of us, when we get angry, we go and invade another country. And that's what he did. He invades Judah and he lays siege to Jerusalem. No biggie. Jerusalem had an internal water supply. They had walls 22 feet thick and 25 feet high. But in spite of those walls, Micah prophesies the fall of Jerusalem when he says, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. A slap on the face is a huge insult. To slap around your king is even worse. And so even though Zedekiah had walls, troops, and water, it didn't matter. Those Babylonians broke through the walls. <clears throat> Zedekiah and his troops fled, but the Babylonians chased. And they captured Zedekiah. And in 2 Kings 25, we read, Then they captured the king, and they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and they bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. And Zedekiah was replaced by a governor. And so in verse 1, 150 years before it happened, Micah prophesied the siege of Jerusalem and the end of the Davidic kingdom. Now, as rulers, the kings had failed the Old Testament church. They should have protected the people and kept order according to the moral law, but they didn't do it. They should have worked with the priests to keep the Lord's worship pure. They didn't do that either. And they're not the only rulers who have failed their people. The communists have had a goal of creating a paradise here on earth. And so far, they have killed over 100 million people in the attempt. The French wanted democracy, only to lose their heads when it turned into mob rule. Most leaders have failed one way or another, except here in America. Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, all are held in high regard by 99% of the American people as each one is a political hero. Each one has united the country and brought peace and economic prosperity, not. And yet every four years, we hope this time, we're gonna get the guy who will unite us and bring peace and prosperity but they never do. Governments can't resolve the real problem, the problem of sin in man's heart. To one degree or another, governments use coercion, incarceration, intimidation to force their citizens to behave in an approved manner. To one degree or another, governments are oppressive. Try not paying your taxes. Well, just like the flawed men that rule nations, no sinful man can rule well over God's church. We need God's own ruler. We need a ruler who will deal with the real problem, the heart of man. We need a king, as in Psalm 99, verse 4. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So God, being good and merciful, announces the birth of Jesus, the God-man, in verse 2, who will rule over his church. Listen to the first part of verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Epathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. 
From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem. A town so obscure that you need the town's name and region to identify it. It's like when I tell people that I'm from Treverton. Between Shimokin and Sunbury. An hour north of Harrisburg. Right? And that's when people understand where I'm from. Bethlehem was so small that it was unable to deliver a clan or about a thousand men to Judah's army. So why will God's ruler come from such a little town? I mean, all the other kings descended from David were born in Jerusalem. But the kings are no longer on the throne. And Bethlehem is David's hometown. And the New Testament confirms that this is where the Messiah will be born. In Matthew 2, 4, we read, And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5, 2. So he's born a man in Bethlehem, but he's more than a man. In the rest of verse 2, Micah says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so Micah tells us that he has existed before his birth. The Old Testament is filled with what are called theophanies. These are the appearances of the pre-incarnate Messiah, like in Genesis 18 when he appeared to Abraham to announce that Sarah would have a child, or Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestled with the Lord. And so here in these two small verses of this minor prophet, we see one of the most important prophecies of the Old Testament. The Davidic kingdom will end, and God will provide a new king who is both God and man who will rule over his church. But look at verse 3. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. God's own ruler is giving them up. Why would a great and an almighty king give up his people? And when is the time? I mean, women give birth every day. Well, verse 2 talked about the birth of Jesus. So I think it's a natural conclusion that the time in verse 3 is also his birth. And if that's the case, the them, the people that this ruler is giving up, is his people, the Old Testament church. But again, why would he do that? Well, part of ruling is passing judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, we learn of a man who has done terrible things. And Paul passes judgment upon him, saying, I have decided to, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice how it's the preservation of the soul that's important. Same with the Lord in the Old Testament church. Time after time, prophet after prophet, the Lord warned his people to stay away from false gods and idolatry. But they didn't listen. And so the Lord, after hundreds of years of patience, gave them up to other nations. Exiled to Babylon, conquered by the Greeks and Romans, not to punish, but to discipline his people and to call them back in repentance and to prepare them for his birth. After his birth, he's going to inaugurate the kingdom of God that will incorporate his brethren, not just Israel. His brethren are the elect from all the nations joining together in the New Testament church. So no matter what powers exist in the world, 
They exist by his sufferance and are for the ultimate good of his people. And so Jesus rules, and he will create one people out of many and discipline them when he needs to. And he will be the church's security. Verse 4. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. They will remain. The Lord's church has existed from Adam on. He has always had his faithful ones. Assyria is gone. Babylon is gone. Rome is no more. But the church is still here. They will remain. We will remain because Jesus is our good shepherd. Verse 4 started with, And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Our great shepherd gave his life defending the flock. Each of us should perish for our sins against God. But Jesus, our shepherd, has stood in the breach, volunteering to take on our punishment, to take on our death that we deserve so that we might live. Our great shepherd guides us through his word, as in Psalm 19, 7 through 8. He guides us through his Holy Spirit, as in John 16, 13. Our great shepherd speaks words of comfort to his flock, as in John 10, 27. And our great shepherd feeds his flock, as in Matthew 26, 26. And he can do all of this because he is God Almighty. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He has the strength to rule perfectly, to protect perfectly, and to guide perfectly. And he does so in the majesty of the name of the Lord. He does not need armies, or weapons, or majestic buildings. The Apostle John said, We beheld his glory. And John really did. He saw Jesus transfigured. He saw God's glory and majesty burst forth as Jesus let the veil slip aside for just a moment. We too behold his glory and his majesty. We see it in the beauty of the word of God. We see it in the miracles that he performed. We see it in his wisdom. Like when he said, let him without sin cast the first stone. And we see it in lies transformed. At the beginning of verse 5, we read, And this one will be our peace. We need that peace. God is just, and he cannot abide sin. He told Adam, On the day you sin, that will be the day you die. But because God is rich in mercy, he permitted physical life to continue, giving man the hope of salvation. All men died spiritually when Adam sinned, and the result is that we were separated from God. And there is nothing that we could do about it. We're left in a state of misery. With no ability, let alone a desire to be reconciled to God, we needed him to make the first move. And in Colossians 1.20, Paul tells us that Jesus, the God-man, did just that. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.14-16 that while we were once enemies of God, we have now been reconciled to God through Jesus' death on the cross, and we now have peace with God. Well, let's take stock of where we are. Micah predicted the siege of Jerusalem. Check. The end of the Davidic kings ruling over Jerusalem. Check. 
He predicted the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. Check again. He predicted the Jews and the Gentiles being made one people. Check. That has happened and is continuing to happen. And in verse 4, he predicts that Jesus will be great to the ends of the earth. Today is Sunday. As dawn has arrived around the world, his people, including you, have been waking, going to church and worshiping him. There is a wave of corporate worship making its way around the globe. And that doesn't take into account all the personal worship that goes on unceasingly every day, all day. His church has spread around the world and they praise his name day and night. Check. But if Jesus is our great ruler, and he is. And if he is great until the end of the earth, and he is. And if he is our peace. If all this is true, then as in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage against God and his Holy One? Let's look at verse 5. This one will be our peace when the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples our citadels. Notice the word when. It's not if the Assyrian invades and tramples. It's when he invades and tramples. But again, if Jesus is our peace, why will this happen? Well, I think it goes back to God's mercy. He allows kings, armies, and even regular Joes who are dedicated to the destruction of the church to make their own free choices. And he gives them time to repent and to submit themselves to the Lord. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus rules over the nations. Verse 5. This one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. We have work to do as under shepherds. When the nations rage, when they attack the church, we are to shepherd them. We pray for them. We teach them. We lead them to Christ. And notice that phrase, seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. God will raise up the faithful men that he needs to accomplish this task however many it takes, and however long it takes. In verse 6 we read, And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Shepherds don't use swords. And it's not a sword, but the sword. When Jesus was arrested, Peter pulled out a sword and sliced off an ear. And Jesus was like, no! And he put the ear back on. The book of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we will shepherd the nations with the word of God. And that shepherding takes place in the entrances of the land of Nimrod. Maybe it's just me, but doesn't that sound an awful lot like Jesus saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church? Now, entrances are usually the most heavily guarded and defended of places. No matter. We preach the word of God to those who will attack the church. We preach it in the most heavily defended and fortified of places. All of us are witnesses to the truth of God's mercy and salvation, and they will be the ones on the defense. But rest assured, those entrances will give way before the word of God. The rest of verse 6 says, And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. It does not matter if the nations rage against the church. They will not prevail. 
because Jesus rules the nations. The Lord will deliver us from the unbelievers who seek to control and destroy the church. Our sword, the word of God, will go forth and bring fruit. I mean, think about Rome. Think about how they used every means at their disposal to wipe out Christianity. And what happened? Large numbers of men within the, the Roman army became Christians. Even an emperor became a Christian. So do not be afraid to preach the word of God. Yes, we're all hypocrites. But we are forgiven hypocrites. Don't allow the world to silence you with that canard. People in the world are just as much of a hypocrite as we are, but they're not forgiven. Speak the truth of the gospel so that they too may be forgiven and find life. But before you do, take care of business. Know the gospel. Understand the word of God. Understand our basic doctrine. Understand how to answer objections like, well, that's just your interpretation. God loves everyone, no matter what they believe. There are many roads to God. God doesn't exist. Well, those are nice stories, but no one believes those anymore. We're called to give an answer to these questions and more. Be prepared. And did you notice in verse 5 that it is we who raise up the shepherds? Mom and Dad, we must train our children from an early age to know the scriptures, to know the doctrines, and most importantly, to know Jesus. You know, as important as preaching the gospel is, we must do more than preach. We must be a blessing to the unbelievers. Take a look at 7. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. Dew is essential for maintaining life in a dry and weary land. It's a blessing from God. When Isaac blessed Jacob, he said in Genesis 27:28, Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. Those material blessings stem from the dew. Dew mysteriously forms overnight. It coats every surface and seeps into the ground. And did you know that there are different types of dew? There's the wet dew that we normally think of. There's something called hoarfrost. And then there's the regular frost on our windshields. There's even mountain dew. And each of us is a type of dew. The point is that we are to be a blessing to others in many different ways. Each of us is to find our own path based on our talents, disposition, and opportunities. You know, you know when dew forms, it blankets an area. But the water per square foot isn't that great, and yet it sustains life. So whether you provide childcare for a stressed parent, deliver meals on wheels, work in a nursery, teach Sunday school, visit prisoners or the hospitalized, provide meals for others, show hospitality, drive someone who needs a lift, or any of the thousands of little things that we can do for one another, be due and show them the grace of God. But some people are showers, like Gutenberg. He made the Bible available to the masses, people like you and me. And then there's Luther, who recovered the doctrine of salvation by faith. And Alexis Carell, a French doctor and a Christian who invented vascular surgery techniques, and the list goes on. Now, while famous Christians 
have done great things as individuals. Many more have done great things as a group of Christians working anonymously, sometimes taking years to accomplish their task. Like changing Rome's culture from one that allowed infanticide to one that valued life. Same for the value of women who were considered the property of their husband. Rome forced widows to remarry immediately, whether they wanted to or not. But the church stepped in, and it supported the widows financially until they chose to remarry. Christians started the first hospitals and orphanages. The Puritans passed the first law in America to require education of children. And our Constitution's checks and balances are based on the doctrine of total depravity. Am I a blessing? Am I due to my family, friends, and neighbors? Do I pray to the Lord for an opportunity to be due? Or even better, to be a shower? And did you notice the last part of verse 7? Which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. God mercifully supplies the due without being asked, and neither does he charge for it. We do not require belief or payment before we bless someone. When we see a need, we should act. We bless others because God has blessed us. We'll take a look at 8 and 9. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples and tears down, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. Well, that doesn't sound very peaceable, does it? But just like we saw above, the church is everywhere. And just like a lion, we too roar with the gospel. We preach loud and clear that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Have you heard that message? Have you repented of your sin in order to avoid the pangs of hell? Have you asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life? There is no reason to wait. If the Lord is moving in your heart, speak to an elder or a deacon today. It's a serious matter. There are consequences to unbelief. Micah points that out when he says, and all your enemies will be cut off. We had said earlier that God allowed the nations to rage in order to give them time to repent. But that time is not indefinite. Jesus rules over the nations. He rules, and at some point he will bring judgment on those who continue to rage. When we were on vacation, I was mulling over this passage, and I asked Trish when she had felt the freest. And her answer surprised me. Uh, it was on her first vacation because she had no one telling her what to do, and she was free to do whatever she wished. You know, that was the first time that I understood the deep longing for retirement that I hear from others. You know, I, I hear people at work dream about retirement all the time. They don't want to be controlled by a boss who often seems to make arbitrary decisions. Not that mine does. Control, right? We started off talking about control. The Israelites wanted a king to throw off the Philistines' control. But those kings' control turned out to be even worse. They suffered under Babylonian control. They suffered under Greco-Roman control. God's people wanted freedom. Well, good news. Our third point is Jesus rules over me. That may sound a little counterintuitive. How can I find the freedom that I want under the hand of an almighty and sovereign God 
who rules over me. I think we need to check our assumptions. Am I free outside of Christ? In Romans 7, Paul says, no. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. And in verses 10 and 11, we see that Jesus frees us from the bondage of sin. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. Oh, come on, Al. What in the world do horses and chariots have to do with being freed from sin? Well, consider Deuteronomy 17, 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return this way. That he is a future king of Israel. Even during the time of, of Moses, God knew that the people would want a king, and so he gives a warning to those kings. He warns the future kings to avoid reliance upon human standards of wealth and power for security. But the kings relied upon all those things for security. They relied upon horses and chariots and treaties with evil kings when they should have relied upon God alone. And so in verse 10, we see that God will purify his people by eliminating all the things that we count on for security. We see the same thing with the elimination of our fortresses in verse 11. We all have those deep-seated sins that seem to be a part of our makeup. Those fortresses that we struggle with throughout our lives, those sins that we seem to achieve victory over, only to relapse into them. God will purify his people. Remember the problem with those human kings? They were sinful. They couldn't address the sin in our hearts. But Jesus, our great redeemer, is sinless. And he can deal with the sins in our heart. He says, take my yoke upon you. Take Jesus as the ruler of your life. Not only will he deal with the sins of your heart, he will free you from the bondage of sin, begin the process of sanctification, and tear down those fortresses. Have you taken his yoke? You can. All it takes is repentance and belief. Won't you do so today? Jesus frees us from vain human philosophies in verse 12. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. <clears throat> that word sorcery can mean seductive or corrupting influences. Our popular culture is filled with those songs, TV shows, the conventional wisdom, things like, if it feels good, it must be right, regardless of the moral law. Just do it, no matter who gets hurt. He who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? That's a poor substitute for love God and enjoy him forever. Que sera, sera. Isn't that fatalism? Question everything. But Romans 1 tells us that there is absolute knowledge that we all know. Jesus frees us from these false perception, perceptions of how the world works. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For though we walk in flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And Jesus will free us from false religion. In 13 and 14, Micah says, I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your ashram from among you and destroy your cities. One of the biggest issues with the Old Testament church was idolatry. The ashram poles, statues of Baal, worship of Moloch. But you know, after the exile, such overt disobedience ceased. His people gave up worshiping false gods, and they truly confessed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. From Deuteronomy 6.4. But like many of us, they had trouble with verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. But God is gracious. In his word, he tells us exactly how we are to worship and love him and him alone. We call it the regulative principle. The Lord has given us elders to help us follow those commands. And so we are free from inventing false worship practices. We are free from wondering if what we do is acceptable to God. We are free to worship in spirit and truth. And finally, the Lord frees us from injustice in verse 15. He says, and I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. We end up back with the problem of control. The nations rage against the Lord's anointed and his people. Twitter rages against the Lord's anointed and his people. We see a Christian baker losing his livelihood because he won't toe the line on the world's immorality. We see Christ and Christianity smeared by the world's definition of what is righteous and moral. We see the word of God mocked and despised. We see the killing of the unborn glorified as compassion. We see adultery and prostitution glorified as the highest form of self-actualization. And we see deception and lies glorified as wisdom. In all these upside-down moralities, people suffer great injustice. But in the end, God's word will prevail. Our great and almighty king will prevail. He will execute justice on those who have not obeyed. So stay faithful, church you will be free from injustice. So the Lord promises to free us from sin, from vain human philosophies, from false religion and injustice. Not so we can sit around. He frees us to worship and glorify him. He frees us to be due to the nations. He frees us to preach the gospel. And even better, he frees us to be who we really are. Control, right? Someone once said, control leaves no room for trust. God gives each and every one of us great freedom because he trusts us to use it wisely. He trusts us to control ourselves and not others. We don't bully people into submission. We don't manipulate people into submission. We don't need to take control of things like the steering wheel and the brake. We don't have to force our will on others, except maybe for the thermostat. Kidding. At least we shouldn't do those things. 
And when we do, we can find forgiveness by confessing our sin. You know what Micah 5 reminds me of? And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a command from our great king. We need to roar the gospel and invite others to Christ. We need to shepherd the nations, teaching true morality from the word of God. I think there's something like 43 shopping days left before Christmas. Jesus is the best gift that you can give to someone. And it's a gift without cost because Jesus paid it all. So next month, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, God's great ruler, remember because he was born in Bethlehem as our great king, you have been freed from sin and are free to serve him as your gifts, talents, personality, and opportunities allow. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. Equip us, Lord. Empower us, Lord. Help us as we go forth from here to be due and to preach the gospel. Amen.